101. Dead Eye. Moalach is very similar to Nergaul, though instead of inspiring a battle rage, he supposedly granted visions of the future. In this, lore and theology align. Seeing the future originates with the unmade and is from the enemy. From Hesse's Mythica, page 143. Adolin tugged at the jacket, standing in Captain Eco's cabin. The spren had lent the room to him for a few hours. The jacket was too short, but was the biggest the spren had. Adolin had cut off the trousers right below the knees, then tucked the bottoms into his long socks and tall boots. He rolled the sleeves of the jacket up to match, approximating an old style from Thalena. The jacket still looked too baggy. Leave it unbuttoned, he decided. The rolled sleeves look intentional that way. He tucked his shirt in, pulled the belt tight. Good by contrast? He studied it in the captain's mirror. It needed a waistcoat. Those, fortunately, weren't too hard to fake. Eco had provided a burgundy coat that was too small for him. He removed the collar and sleeves, stitched the rough edges under, then slid it up the back. He was just finishing it up with some laces on the back when Eco checked in on him. Adolin buttoned on the improvised waistcoat, threw on the jacket, then presented himself with hands at his sides. Very nice, Eco said. You look like an honor spren going to a feast of light. Thanks, Adolin said, inspecting himself in the small mirror. The jacket needs to be longer, but I don't trust myself to let down the hems. Eco studied him with metal eyes, bronze with holes for the pupils, like Adolin had seen done for some statues. Even the spren's hair appeared sculpted in place. Eco could almost have been a soul-cast king from an age long past. You were a ruler among your kind, weren't you? Eco asked. Why did you leave? The humans we get here are refugees, merchants, or explorers, not kings. King? Was Adolin a king? Surely his father would decide not to continue with the abdication now that Elokar had passed. No answer, Eco said. That is fine. But you were a ruler among them. I can read it in you. Highborn status is important to humans. Maybe a little too important, eh? Adolin said, adjusting the neck scarf he'd made from his handkerchief. That is true, Eco said. You are all human, and so none of you, regardless of birth, can be trusted with oaths. A contract to travel, that is fine, but humans will betray trust if it is given to them. The spren frowned, then seemed to grow embarrassed, glancing away. That was rude. Rudeness doesn't necessarily imply untruth, though. I didn't mean an insult, regardless. You are not to be blamed. Betraying oaths is simply your nature as a human. You don't know my father, Adolin said. Still, the conversation left him uncomfortable. Not because of Eco's words, Spren tended to say odd things, and Adolin didn't take offense. More, he felt his own growing worry that he might actually have to take the throne. He'd grown up knowing it could happen, but he'd also grown up wishing, 
desperately that it never would. In his quiet moments he'd assumed this hesitance was because a king couldn't apply himself to things like dueling and, well, enjoying life. What if it went deeper? What if he'd always known inconsistency lurked within him? He couldn't keep pretending he was the man his father wanted him to be. Well, it was moot anyway. Alethkar as a nation had fallen. He accompanied Eco back out of the captain's cabin onto the deck, walking over to Shallan, Kaladin, and Azure, who stood by the starboard whale. Each wore a shirt, trousers, and jacket they'd bought off the reachers with dun spheres. Dun gemstones weren't worth nearly as much on this side, but apparently trade with the other side did happen, so they had some value. Kaladin gaped at Adolin, looking down at his boots, then up at the neck scarf, then focusing on the waistcoat. That befuddled expression alone made the work worthwhile. How? Kaladin demanded. Did you sew that? Adolin grinned. Kaladin looked like a man trying to wear his childhood suit. He'd never button that coat across his broad chest. Shallan fit her shirt and jacket better from a pure measurements standpoint, but the cut wasn't flattering. Azure looked far more... normal without her dramatic breastplate and cloak. I'd practically kill for a skirt, Shallan noted. You're kidding, Azure said. No, I'm getting tired of the way trousers rub my legs. Adolin, could you sew me a dress? Maybe stitch the legs of these trousers together? He rubbed his chin, which had begun to sprout a blonde beard. It doesn't work that way. I can't magic more cloth out of nothing. It... He trailed off as overhead the clouds suddenly rippled, glowing with a strange mother-of-pearl iridescence. Another high storm, their second since arriving in Shadesmar. The group stopped and stared up at the dramatic light show. Nearby, the Reachers seemed to stand up more straight, move about their sailing duties more vigorously. See, Asher said, I told you, they must feed off it somehow. Shallan narrowed her eyes, then grabbed her sketchbook and stalked over to begin interviewing some of the Spren. Kaladin trailed away to join his Spren at the prow of the ship, where she liked to stand. Adolin often noticed him looking southward, as if anxiously wishing the ship to move more quickly. He lingered by the side of the ship, watching the beads crash away below. When he looked up, he found Azure studying him. Did you really sew that? she asked. There wasn't much sewing involved, Adolin said. The scarf and jacket hide most of the damage I did to the waistcoat, which used to be a smaller jacket. Still, she said, an unusual skill for a royal. And how many royals have you known? More than some might assume. Adolin nodded. I see. And are you enigmatic on purpose, or is it a kind of accidental thing? Asher leaned against the ship's whale, breeze blowing her short hair. She looked more youthful when not wearing the breastplate and cloak. Mid-thirties, maybe. A little of both. I discovered when I was younger that being too open with strangers went poorly for me. But in answer to your question, I have known royals, including one woman who left it behind. Throne, family, responsibilities. 
She abandoned her duty? That was practically inconceivable. The throne was better served by someone who enjoyed sitting on it. Duty isn't about what you enjoy. It's about what is demanded of you in serving the greater good. You can't just abandon responsibility because you feel like it. Asher glanced at Adolin, and he felt himself blush. Sorry, he said, looking away. My father and my uncle might have uh, instilled me with a little passion on the topic. It's all right, Asher said. Maybe you're right, and maybe there's something in me that knows it. I always find myself in situations like in Kolinar, leading the wall guard. I get too involved, then uh, abandon everyone. You didn't abandon the wall guard, Asher, Adolin said. You couldn't have prevented what happened. Perhaps. I can't help feeling that this is merely one in a long string of duties abdicated, of burdens set down, perhaps to disastrous results. For some reason she put her hand on the pommel of her shard blade when she said that. Then she looked up at Adolin. But of all the things I've walked away from, the one I don't regret is allowing someone else to rule. Sometimes the best way to do your duty is to let someone else, or someone more capable, try carrying it. Such a foreign idea. Sometimes you took up a duty that wasn't yours, but abandoning one? Just giving it to someone else? He found himself musing on that. He nodded his thanks to Azure as she excused herself to get something to drink. He was still standing there when Shalon returned from interviewing, well, interrogating, the Reachers. She took his arm, and together they watched the shimmering clouds for a while. I look terrible, don't I? she finally asked, nudging him in the side. No makeup, with hair that hasn't been washed in days, and now wearing a dumpy set of workers' clothing? I don't think you're capable of looking terrible, he said, pulling her closer. In all their color, even those clouds can't compete. They passed through a sea of floating candle flames, which represented a village on the human side. The flames were huddled together in patches, hiding from the storm. Eventually the clouds faded, but they were supposedly near the city now, so Shalon got excited, watching for it. Finally, she pointed to land on the horizon. Celebrant nestled not far down its coast. As they drew closer, they spotted other ships entering or leaving the port, each pulled by at least two mandras. Captain Eco walked over. We'll soon arrive. Let's go get your dead-eye. Adolin nodded, patting Shallan on the back, and followed Eco down to the brig, a small room far aft in the cargo hold. Eco used keys to unlock the door, revealing the spren of Adolin's sword sitting on a bench inside. She looked at him with those haunting, scratched-out eyes, her string face void of emotion. I wish you hadn't locked her in here, Adolin said, stooping down to peer through the squat doorway. Can't have them on deck, Eco said. They don't watch where they're walking and fall off. I'm not going to spend days trying to fish out a lost dead-eye. She moved to join Adolin, then Eco reached over to shut the cell. Wait, Adolin said. Eco, I saw something moving back there. Eco locked the door and hung the keys on his belt. My father. Your father? 
Adolin said. You keep your father locked up? Can't stand the thought of him wandering around somewhere, Eko said, eyes forward. Have to keep him locked away, though. He'll go searching for the human carrying his corpse otherwise. Walk right off the deck. Your father was a radiant spren? Eko started toward the steps up to the deck. It is rude to ask about such ones. Rudeness doesn't imply untruth, though, right? Eko turned and regarded him, then smiled wanly and nodded toward Adolin's spren. What is she to you? A friend. A tool. You use her corpse on the other side, don't you? Well, I won't blame you. I've heard stories of what they can do, and I am a pragmatic person. Just don't pretend she is your friend. By the time they reached the deck, the ship was approaching the docks. Eko started calling orders, though his crew clearly knew what to do already. The celebrant docks were wide and large, longer than the city. Ships pulled in along stone piers, though Adolin couldn't figure out how they got back out again. Hook the mandras to the stern and pull them out that way? The shore was marked by long warehouses set in rows, which marred the view of the city proper, in Adolin's opinion. The ship drew up at a berth on a specific pier, guided by a reacher with semaphore. Eko's sailors unlatched a piece of the hull, which unfolded to steps, and a sailor hiked down immediately to greet another group of reachers. These began unlatching the mandras with long hooks, leading them away. As each flying spren was released from the rigging, the ship sank a little farther into the bead ocean. Eventually, it seemed to settle onto some braces and steady there. Pattern came over, humming to himself and meeting the rest of them as they gathered on the deck. Eko stepped up, gesturing. A deal fulfilled and a bond kept. Thank you, Captain, Adolin said, shaking Eko's hand. Eko returned the gesture awkwardly. He obviously knew what to do, but was unpracticed at it. You're sure you won't take us the rest of the way to the portal between realms? I'm certain, Eko said firmly. The region around cultivation's perpendicularity has gained a poor reputation of late. Too many ships vanishing. What about Thalen City? Kaladin asked. Could you take us there? No. I unload goods here and then head east, away from trouble. And if you'll accept a little advice, stay in Shadesmar. The physical realm is not a welcoming place these days. We'll take that under advisement, Adolin said. Is there anything we should know about the city? Don't stray too far outside. With human cities nearby, there will be anger spren in the area. Try not to draw too many lesser spren and maybe see if you can find a place to tie up that dead eye of yours. He pointed. The dock registrar is that building ahead of us with the blue paint. There you'll find a list of ships willing to take on passengers, but you'll have to go to each one individually and make sure they are equipped to take humans, and haven't already booked all their cabins. The building next to that is a money changer where you can trade stormlight for notes of exchange. He shook his head. My daughter used to work there before she ran off chasing stupid dreams. He bade them farewell, and the group of travelers walked down the gangway onto the docks. Curiously, Syl still wore an illusion, making her face an alethi tan, 
her hair black, her clothing red. Was being an honor spren really that big a deal? So, Adolin said as they reached the pier, how are we going to do this? In the city, I mean. I've counted out our marks, Shalon said, holding up a bag of spears. It's been long enough since they were renewed. They'll almost certainly lose their stormlight in the next few days. A few have already gone out. We might as well trade for supplies. We can keep the bromes and the larger gemstones for surge binding. First stop is the money changer, then, Adolin said. After that, we should see if we can buy more rations, Kaladin said, just in case. And we need to look for passage. But to where, Azure said, the perpendicularity or Thalen City? Let's see what our options are, Adolin decided. Maybe there will be a ship to one destination, but not the other. Let's send one group to inquire with ships and another to get supplies. Shalon, do you have a preference which you'd rather do? I'll look for passage, she said. I have experience with it. I made a lot of trips when chasing down Yasna. Sounds good, Adolin said. We should put one radiant in each group, so Bridge Boy and Sill, you'll go with me. Pattern and Azure, we'll go with Shalon. Maybe I should help Shalon, Sill began. We'll need a spren with us, Adolin said, to explain culture here. Let's go trade in those spheres first, though. 102. Celebrant Moalach was said to grant visions of the future at different times, but most commonly at the transition point between realms, when a soul was nearing the tranquiline halls. From Hesse's Mythica, page 144. Kaladin hiked through the city with Adolin and Sill. The money-changing had gone quickly, and they'd left the spren of Adolin's sword with the others. After Shalon had taken the Deadeye's hand, she had remained behind. Reaching this city marked a welcome step forward toward finally getting out of this place and reaching Dalinar. Unfortunately, a brand-new city full of unknown threats didn't encourage him to relax. The city wasn't as densely populated as most human ones, but the variety of spren was stunning. Reachers like Eko and his sailors were common, but there were also spren that looked much like Adolin's sword, at least before she'd been killed. They were made entirely of vines, though they had crystal hands and wore human clothing. Equally common were spren with inky black skin that shone with a variety of colors when light hit them right. Their clothing seemed part of them, like that of the cryptics and honor spren. A small group of cryptics passed nearby, huddling close together as they walked. Each had a head with a slightly different pattern. There were other spren with skin like cracked stone, molten light shining from within. Still others had skin the color of old white ashes, and when Kaladin saw one of these point towards something— the skin stretching at the joint of his arm disintegrated and blew away, revealing the joint and knobs of the humerus. The skin quickly regrew. The variety reminded Kaladin of the costumes of the Cult of Moments, though he didn't spot a single honor spren. And it didn't seem like the other spren mixed much. Humans were rare enough that the three of them, including Sill, imitating Analethi, turned heads. Buildings were constructed using bricks in a variety of colors or blocks of many different types of stone. 
Each building was a hodgepodge of materials with no pattern Kaladin could determine. How do they get building materials? Kaladin asked as they followed the money changer's instructions toward the nearby market. Are there quarries on this side? Syl frowned. I... She cocked her head. You know, I'm not sure. I think maybe we make it appear on this side, somehow from yours, like Eco did with the ice. They seem to wear whatever, Adolin said, pointing. That's an Alethi officer's coat over an Azish scribe's vest. Tashiki wrap worn with trousers, and there's almost a full Thalen Telemco, but they're missing the boots. No children, Kaladin noticed. There have been a few, Syl said. They just don't look little, like human children. How does that even work, Adolin said. Well, it's certainly less messy than your method. She scrunched her face up. We're made of power, bits of gods. There are places where that power coalesces and parts start to be aware. You go and then come back with a child, I think. Adolin chuckled. What? Kaladin asked. That's actually not that different from what my nanny told me when I asked her where children came from. A nonsense story about parents baking a new child out of creme clay. It doesn't happen often. Syl said as they passed a group of the ash-colored spren sitting around a table and watching the crowds. They eyed the humans with overt hostility, and one flicked fingers toward Kaladin. Those fingers exploded to bits of dust, leaving bones that grew back the flesh. Raising children doesn't happen often? Adolin asked. Syl nodded. It's rare. Most spren will go hundreds of years without doing it. Hundreds of years. Storms, Kaladin whispered, considering it. Most of these spren are that old? Or older, Syl said. But aging isn't the same with spren. Like time isn't. We don't learn as fast or change much without a bond. Towers in the city's center showed the time by way of fires burning in a set of vertical holes so they could judge how to meet back with the others in an hour as agreed. The market turned out to be mostly roofless stalls open to the air with goods piled on tables. Even in comparison to the improvised market of Yurithiru, this seemed ephemeral to Kaladin. But there were no storm winds to worry about here, so it probably made sense. They passed a clothing stall, and of course Adolin insisted on stopping. The oily spren who managed the place had an odd, very terse way of talking, with a strange use of words. But it did speak Alethi, unlike most of Eko's crew. Kaladin waited for the prince to finish until Syl stepped up and presented herself in an oversized poncho tied with a belt. On her head, she wore a large, floppy hat. What's that? Kaladin asked. Clothes. Why do you need clothes? Yours are built in. Those are boring. Can't you change them? Take stormlight on this side, she said. Plus, the dress is part of my essence, so I'm actually walking around naked all the time. It's not the same. Easy for you to say. We bought you clothing. You have three sets. Three, he said, looking down at his clothing. I have my uniform, and this one Eco gave me. 
plus the one you're wearing underneath that one. Underwear? Kaladin said. Yeah. That means you have three sets of clothing while I have none. We need two sets so one can be washed while we wear the other. Just so you won't be stinky. She rolled her eyes in an exaggerated way. Look, you can give these to Shalon when I get bored with them. You know she likes hats. That was true. He sighed, and when Adolin returned with another set of underclothing for each of them, along with a skirt for Shalon, Kaladin had him haggle for the clothing Syl was wearing, too. The prices were shockingly cheap, using a tiny fraction of the money from their writ. They continued on, passing stalls that sold building materials. According to the signs Syl could read, some items were far more expensive than others. Syl seemed to think the difference had to do with how permanent the thing was in Shadesmar, which made Kaladin worry for the clothing they'd bought. They found a place selling weapons, and Adolin tried to negotiate while Kaladin browsed. Some kitchen knives, a few hand axes, and sitting in a locked, glass-topped box, a long, thin, silvery chain. You're like? the shopkeeper asked. She was made of vines, her face formed as if from green string, and wore a hava with a crystal safe hand exposed. Only a thousand bromes of stormlight. A thousand bromes? Kaladin asked. He looked down at the box, which was locked to the table and guarded by small orange spren that looked like people. No thanks. The pricing here really was bizarre. The swords proved more expensive than Adolin wanted, but he did buy them two harpoons, and Kaladin felt a lot more secure once one was placed in his hands. Walking on, Kaladin noted that Syl was hunkered down in her oversized poncho, her hair tucked into the collar and her hat pulled down to shadow her face. It seemed like she didn't trust Shalon's illusion to keep her from being recognized as an honor spren. The food stall they found had mostly more cans, like those on the ship. Adolin started haggling, and Kaladin settled in for another wait, scanning those who passed on the pathway for danger. He found his eyes drawn, however, to a stall across from them, selling art. Kaladin had never had much time for art. Either the picture depicted something useful, like a map, or it was basically pointless. And yet, nestled among the paintings for display, was a small one painted from thick strokes of oil, white and red with lines of black. When he looked away, he found himself drawn back toward it, studying the way the highlights played off those dark lines. Like nine shadows, he thought, with a figure kneeling in the middle. The ashen spren waved excitedly, pointing to the east and then making a cutting motion. She spoke a language Shalon couldn't understand, but fortunately Pattern could interpret. Ah, he said. Mm, yes, I see. She will not sail back to cultivation's perpendicularity. Mm, no, she will not go. Same excuse? Shalon asked. Yes, void spren sailing warships and demanding tribute from any who approach. Oh, she says she would rather trade with honor spren than take another trip to the perpendicularity. I think this is an insult. Ha, ha, ha. Mmm. Void spren, Azure said. 
Can she at least explain what that means? The ashen spren began speaking quickly after Pattern asked. Hmm, there are many varieties, she says. Some of golden light, others are red shadows. Curious, yes. And it sounds like some of the fused are with them. Men with shells that can fly. I did not know this. What? Azure prompted. Shadesmar has been changing these last months, Pattern explained. Void Spren have arrived mysteriously just west of the Nexus of Imagination, near Marat, or Tukar, on your side. Hmm, and they have sailed up and seized the perpendicularity. She says, ahem, you need but spit into a crowd and you'll find one these days. Ha ha ha, I do not think she actually has spit. Shallan and Azure shared a look as the sailor retreated onto her ship, to which mandras were being harnessed. The spren of Adolin's sword lingered nearby, seeming content to stay where told. Passers-by looked away from her, as if embarrassed to see her there. Well, the dock registrar was right, Azure said, folding her arms. No ships sailing toward the peaks or toward Thalen City. Those destinations are too close to enemy holdings. Maybe we should try for the Shattered Plains instead, Shallan said. That meant going east, a direction ships were more likely to travel these days. It would mean going away from both what Kaladin and Azure wanted, but at least it would be something. If they got there, she'd still need to find a way to engage the Oathgate on this side. What if she failed? She imagined them trapped in some far-off location surrounded by beads, slowly starving. Let's keep asking the ships on our list, she said, leading the way. The next ship in line was a long, stately vessel made of white wood with golden trim. Its entire presentation seemed to say, good luck affording me. Even the mandras being led toward it from one of the warehouses wore gold harnesses. According to the list from the dock registrar, this was heading someplace called Lasting Integrity, which was to the southwest. That was kind of the direction Kaladin wanted to go, so Shallan had Pattern stop one of the grooms and ask if the captain of the ship would be likely to take human passengers. The groom, a spren that looked like she was made of fog or mist, merely laughed and walked off as if she'd heard a grand joke. I suppose, Azure said, we should take that for a no. The next ship in line was a sleek vessel that looked fast to Shallan's untrained eyes. A good choice, the registrar had noted, and likely to be welcoming toward humans. Indeed, a spren working on the deck waved as they approached. He put one booted foot up on the side of his ship and looked down with a grin. What kind of spren, Shallan thought, has skin like cracked rock. He glowed deep within, as if molten on the inside. Humans, he called in Vaden, reading Shallan's hair as a sign of her heritage. You're far from home, or close, I suppose, just in the wrong realm. We're looking for passage, Shallan called up. Where are you sailing? East, he said, toward Freelight. Could we potentially negotiate passage? 
Sure, he called down. Always interesting to have humans aboard. Just don't eat my pet chicken. Ha! But negotiations will have to wait. We've got an inspection soon. Come back in a half hour. The dock registrar had mentioned this. An official inspection of the ships happened at first hour every day. Shalon and the team backed off, and she suggested returning to their meeting place near the dock registrar. As they approached, Shalon could see that Eco's ship was already under inspection by a dock official, another spren made of vines and crystal. Maybe we could convince Eco to take us if we just tried harder. Perhaps... Azure's breath caught, and she grabbed Shalon by the shoulder, yanking her into an alley between two warehouses, out of sight of the ship. Damnation. What? Shalon demanded, as Pattern and, lethargically, Adolin's spren joined them. Look up there, Azure said, talking with Eco on the poop deck. Shalon frowned, then peeked out, spotting what she'd missed earlier. A figure stood up there, with the marbled skin of a parchman. He floated a foot or two off the deck, next to Eco, looming like a stern tutor over a foolish student. The spren with the vines and crystal body walked up, reporting to this one. Perhaps, Azure said, we should have asked who runs the inspections. Kaladin's harpoon drew nervous glances as he crossed the pathway between stalls to get a closer look at the painting. Can Spren even be hurt in this realm? A part of him wondered. The sailors wouldn't carry harpoons if things couldn't be killed on this side, right? He'd have to ask Syl, once she was done interpreting for Adolin. Kaladin stepped up to the painting. The ones beside it showed far more technical prowess, they were capable portraits, perfectly capturing their human subjects. This one was sloppy by comparison. It looked like the painter had simply taken a knife covered in paint and slopped it onto the canvas, making general shapes. Haunting, beautiful shapes. Mostly reds and whites, but with a figure at the center, throwing out nine shadows. Delinor, he thought. I failed Elokar. After all we went through, after the rains and confronting Moash, I've failed. And I lost your city. He reached up his fingers to touch the painting. Marvelous, isn't it? A spren said. Kaladin jumped, sheepishly lowering his fingers. The proprietor of this stall was a reacher woman, short with a bronze ponytail. It's a unique piece, human, she said. From the far-off court of gods... A painting intended only for a divinity to see. It is exceptionally rare that one escapes being burned at the court and makes its way onto the market. Nine shadows, Kaladin said. The unmade? This is a piece by Nenefra. It is said that each person who sees one of his masterworks sees something different. And to think I charge such a minuscule price... Only three hundred broms worth of stormlight. Truly times are difficult in the art market. Aye. Haunting images from Kaladin's vision overlapped the stark wedges of paint on the canvas. He needed to reach Thalen City. He had to be there on time. What was that disturbance behind him? 
Kaladin shook out of his reverie and glanced over his shoulder just in time to see Adolin jogging toward him. We have a problem, the prince said. How could you not mention this? Shallan said to the little spren at the registrar office. How could you neglect to point out that Void Spren ruled the city? I thought everyone knew, he said, vines curling and moving at the corners of his face. Oh dear, oh my, anger is not helpful, human. I am a professional. It is not my job to explain things you should already know. He's still on Eco's ship, Azure said, looking out the office window. Why is he still on Eco's ship? That is odd, the Spren said. Each inspection usually takes only thirteen minutes. Damnation. Shallan breathed out, trying to calm herself. Coming back to the registrar had been a calculated risk. He was probably working with the fused, but they hoped to intimidate him into talking. When did it happen? Shallan asked. My Spren friend told us this was a free city. It's been months now, the Vine Spren said. Oh, they don't have firm control here, mind you. Just a few officials and promises from our leaders to follow. Too fused to check in on us now and then. I think the other is quite insane. Kirill, who is running the inspections, well, he might be mad too, actually. You see, when he gets angry, damnation, Azure cursed. What? He just set Eko's ship on fire. Kaladin ran back across the street to find Syl a center of activity. She had pulled her oversized hat down to obscure her face, but a collection of spren stood around the food stall, pointing at her and talking. Kaladin shoved his way through, took Syl by the arm, and pulled her away from the stall. Adolin followed, holding his harpoon in one hand and a sack of food in the other. He looked threateningly toward the spren in the gathered crowd, who didn't give chase. They recognize you, Kaladin said to Syl, even with the illusory skin color. Uh... Maybe. Syl. She held to her hat with one hand, her other arm in his hand as he towed her through the street. So, you know how I mentioned I snuck away from the other honor spren? Yes. So there might have been an enormous reward for my return. Posted in basically every port in Shadesmar with my description and some pictures. Um, yeah. You've been forgiven, Kaladin said. The Stormfather has accepted your bond to me. Your siblings are watching Bridge Four, investigating potential bonds themselves. That's kind of recent, Kaladin. And I doubt I've been forgiven. The others on the Shattered Plains wouldn't talk to me. As far as they're concerned, I'm a disobedient child. There's still an incredible reward in Stormlight to be given to the person that delivers me to the Honorspren capital— lasting integrity. And you didn't think this was important to tell me? Sure I did. Right now. They stopped to allow Adolin to catch up. The spren back at the food stall were still talking. Storms, this news would spread throughout Celebrant before long. Kaladin glared at Syl, who pulled down into the oversized poncho she'd bought. Azure is a 
bounty hunter, she said in a small voice. And I'm, I'm kind of like a spren light eyes. I didn't want you to know, in case you hated me like you hate them. Kaladin sighed, taking her by the arm again and pulling her toward the docks. I should have known this disguise wouldn't work, she added. I'm obviously too beautiful and interesting to hide. News of this might make it hard to get passage, Kaladin said. We... He stopped in the street. Is that smoke up ahead? The fused touched down on the quay, tossing Eco to the ground of the docks. Behind, Eco's ship had become a raging bonfire. The other sailors and inspectors scrambled down the gangway in a frantic jumble. Shallan watched from the window. Her breath caught as the fuse lifted a few inches off the ground, then glided toward the registrar's building. She sucked in stormlight by reflex. Look frightened, she said to the others. She grabbed Adeline Spren by the arm and pulled her to the side of the clerk's room. The fuse burst in and found them cringing, wearing the faces of sailors that Shallan had sketched. Pattern was the oddest one, his strange head needing to be covered by a hat to have any semblance of looking realistic. Please don't notice we're the same sailors as on the ship. Please. The fused ignored them, gliding up to the frightened vine spren behind the desk. That ship was hiding human criminals, Pattern whispered, translating the fused's conversation with the registrar. They had a hydrator and remnants of human food eaten on the deck. There are two or three humans, one honor spren and one ink spren. Have you seen these criminals? The vine spren cringed down by the desk. They went to the market for needed supplies. They asked me for ships that would get them passage to the perpendicularity. You hid this from me? Why does everyone assume I'll just tell them things? Oh, I need questions, not assumptions. The fused regarded him with a cold glare. Put that out, he said, gesturing toward the fire. Use the city's sand stores if needed. Yes, great one. If I might say, starting fires on the docks is an unwise... You may not say... When you finish putting out the fire, clear your things from this office. You are to be replaced immediately. The fused charged out of the room, letting in the scent of smoke. Eco's ship foundered, the blaze flaring high. Nearby, sailors from other ships were frantically trying to control their mandras and move their vessels away. Oh, oh my, said the spren behind the desk. He looked to them. You, you are a radiant? The old oaths are spoken again? Yes, Shallan said, helping Adolin spren to her feet. The frightened little spren sat up straighter. Oh, glorious day! Glorious! We have waited so long for the honor of men to return. He stood up and gestured. Go, please, Get on a ship. I will stall. Yes, I will if that one comes back. Oh, but go quickly. 
Caledon sensed something on the air. Perhaps it was the flapping of clothing, familiar to him after hours spent riding the winds. Perhaps it was the postures of the people farther down the street. He reacted before he understood what it was, grabbing Syl and Adolin, pulling them all into a tent at the edge of the market. A fused sword passed outside, its shadow trailing behind, pointing the wrong direction. Storms, Adolin said. Nice work, Cal. The tent was occupied only by a single bewildered spren made of smoke, looking odd in a green cap and what seemed to be horn-eater clothing. Out, Kaladin said, the smell of smoke on the air filling him with dread. They hurried down an alleyway between warehouses, out onto the docks. Farther down, Eko's ship burned brilliantly. There was chaos on the docks as spren ran in all directions, shouting in their strange language. Sill gasped, pointing at a ship bedecked in white and gold. We have to hide. Now! Honor Spren, Kaladin said. Yeah. Pull down your hat, go back into the alley, Kaladin scanned the crowd. Adolin, do you see the others? No, he said. Ishar's soul, there's no water to put that fire out. It will burn for hours. What happened? One of Eko's sailors stepped from the crowd. I saw a flash from something the fused was holding. I think he intended to frighten Eko, but started the fire by accident. Wait, Kaladin thought. Was that a lethe? Shalon? he asked as four reachers gathered around. I'm right here, said a different one. We are in trouble. The only ship that might have agreed to give us passage is that one there. The one sailing away at full speed, Kaladin said with a sigh. Nobody else would consider taking us on, Azure said, and they were all heading the wrong directions anyway. We're about to be stranded. We could try fighting our way onto a ship, Kaladin said. Take control of it, maybe? Adolin shook his head. I think that would take long enough and make enough trouble that the fused would find us. Well, maybe I could fight him, Kaladin said. Only one enemy. I should be able to take him. Using all our stormlight in the process? Shalon asked. I'm just trying to think of something. Guys, Sil said, I might have an idea. A great, bad idea. The fused went looking for you, Shalon said to Kaladin. It flew to the market. It passed us. Guys. Not for long, though. It's going to turn around soon. Turns out Sil has a bounty on her head. Guys. We need a plan, Kaladin said. If nobody... He trailed off. Sill had started running toward the majestic white and gold ship, which was slowly being pulled away from the docks. She threw down her poncho and hat, then screamed up at the ship while running along the pier beside it. Hey, she screamed. Hey, look down here. The vessel stopped ponderously, handlers slowing its mandras. Three blue-white honor spren appeared at the side, looking down with utter shock. Sylphrena? The ancient daughter? One shouted. That's me, she shouted back. You'd better catch me before I scamper away. Wow, I'm feeling capricious today. I might just vanish again, off to where nobody can find me. It worked. A gangway dropped, and Sill scrambled up onto the ship, followed by the rest of them. Kaladin went last, watching nervously over his shoulder, expecting the fuse to come after them at any moment. 
It did, but it stopped at the mouth of the alleyway, watching them board the ship. Honorspren gave it pause, apparently. Aboard, Kaladin discovered that most of the sailors were those Spren made of fog or mist. One of these was tying Sill's arms together with rope. Kaladin tried to intervene, but Sill shook her head. Not now, she mouthed. Fine. He would argue with the honor spren later. The ship pulled away, joining others that fled the city. The honor spren didn't pay much mind to Kaladin and the others, though one did take their harpoons, and another went through their pockets, confiscating their infused gemstones. As the city grew smaller, Kaladin caught sight of the fused hovering over the docks beside the smoke trail of a burning ship. It finally streaked off in the other direction. 103. Hypocrite. Many cultures speak of the so-called death rattles that sometimes overtake people as they die. Tradition ascribes them to the Almighty, but I find too many to be seemingly prophetic. This will be my most contentious assertion, I am sure. But I think these are the effects of Moalach persisting in our current times. Proof is easy to provide. The effect is regionalized and tends to move across Roshar. This is the roving of the unmade. From Hesse's Mythica, page 170. Dalinar started awake in an unfamiliar place, lying on a floor of cut stone, his back stiff. He blinked sleepily, trying to orient himself. Storms, where was he? Soft sunlight shone through an open balcony on the far side of the room, and ethereal motes of dust danced in the streams of light. What were those sounds? They seemed like the voices of people, but muffled. Dalinar stood, then fastened the side of his uniform jacket, which had come undone. It had been, what, three days since his return from Yakoved? His excommunication from the Voren Church? He remembered those days as a haze of frustration, sorrow, agony. And drink. A great deal of drink. He'd been using the stupor to drive away the pain. A terrible bandage for his wounds, blood seeping out on all sides. But so far, it had kept him alive. I know this room, he realized, glancing at the mural on the ceiling. I saw it in one of my visions. A high storm must have come while he passed out. Stormfather, Delinar called, his voice echoing. Stormfather, why have you sent me a vision? We agreed they are too dangerous. Yes, he remembered this place well. This was the vision where he'd met Noadon, author of The Way of Kings. Why wasn't it playing out as it had before? He and Noadon had walked to the balcony, talked for a time, then the vision had ended. Dalinar started toward the balcony, but storms, that light was so intense. It washed over him, making his eyes water, and he had to raise his hands to shield his eyes. He heard something behind him, scratching. He turned, putting his back to the brilliance, and spotted a door on the wall. It swung open easily beneath his touch, and he stepped out of the loud sunlight to find himself in a circular room. He shut the door with a click. 
This chamber was much smaller than the previous one, with a wooden floor. Windows in the walls looked out at a clear sky. A shadow passed over one of these, like something enormous moving in front of the sun. But how could the sun be pointed this direction, too? Delinar looked over his shoulder at the wooden door. No light peeked underneath it. He frowned and reached for the handle, then paused, hearing the scratching once more. Turning, he saw a large desk heaped with papers by the wall. How had he missed that earlier? A man sat at the desk, lit by a loose diamond, writing with a reed pen. Noadon had aged. In the previous vision, the king had been young, but now his hair was silver, his skin marked by wrinkles. It was the same man, though, same face shape, same beard that came to a point. He wrote with focused concentration. Dalinar stepped over. The way of kings, he whispered. I'm watching it be written. Actually, Noah Don said, it's a shopping list. I'll be cooking shinloaf bread today, if I can get the ingredients. It always breaks people's brains. Grain was not meant to be so fluffy. What? Dalinar scratched at the side of his head. Noadon finished with a flourish and tossed the pen down. He threw back his chair and stood, grinning like a fool, and grabbed Dalinar by the arms. Good to see you again, my friend. You've been having a hard time of it lately, haven't you? You have no idea, Dalinar whispered, wondering who Noadon saw him as. In the previous vision, Dalinar had appeared as one of Noadon's advisors. They'd stood together on the balcony as Noadon contemplated a war to unite the world. A drastic resort intended to prepare mankind for the next desolation. Could that morose figure have really become this spry and eager? And where had this vision come from? Hadn't the Stormfather told Dalinar that he'd seen them all? Come, Noadon said. Let's go to the market. A little shopping to turn your mind from your troubles. Shopping? Yes, you shop, don't you? I usually have people do that for me. Ah, but of course you do, Noadon said. Very like you to miss a simple joy so you can get to something more important. Well, come on. I'm the king. You can't very well say no now, can you? Noadon led Dalinar back through the door. The light was gone. They crossed to the balcony, which last time had overlooked death and desolation. Now it looked out on a bustling city full of energetic people and rolling carts. The sound of the place crashed into Dalinar as if it had been suppressed until that moment. Laughing, chatting, calling. Wagons creaking, chulls bleeding. The men wore long skirts, tied at the waists by wide girdles, some of which came all the way up over their stomachs. Above that, they had bare chests or wore simple overshirts. The outfits resembled the Takama Dalinar had worn when younger, though of a far, far older style. The tubular gowns on the women were even stranger, made of layered small rings of cloth with tassels on the bottom. They seemed to ripple as they moved. The women's arms were bare up to the shoulders, no safe hand covering. In the previous vision I spoke the dawn chant. 
Delinar remembered. The words that gave Nabani's scholars a starting point to translate ancient texts. How do we get down? Dalinar asked, seeing no ladder. Noadon leaped off the side of the balcony. He laughed, falling and sliding along a cloth banner tied between a tower window and a tent below. Dalinar cursed, leaning forward, worried for the old man until he spotted Noadon glowing. He was a surge binder, but Dalinar had known that from the last vision, hadn't he? Dalinar walked back to the writing chamber and drew the stormlight from the diamond that Noadon had been using. He returned, then heaved himself off the balcony, aiming for the cloth Noadon had used to break his fall. Dalinar hit it at an angle and used it like a slide, keeping his right foot forward to guide his descent. Near the bottom, he flipped off the banner, grabbing its edge with two hands and hanging there for an instant before dropping with a thump beside the king. Noadon clapped. I thought you wouldn't do it. I have practiced following fools in their reckless pursuits. The old man grinned, then scanned his list. This way, he said, pointing. I can't believe you're out shopping by yourself. No guards? I walked all the way to Urethiro on my own. I think I can manage this. You didn't walk all the way to Urethiro, Dalinar said. You walked to one of the oath gates, then took that to Urethiru. Misconception, Noadon said. I walked the whole way, though I did require some help to reach Urethiru's caverns. That is no more a cheat than taking a ferry across a river. He bustled through the market, and Dalinar followed, distracted by the colorful clothing everyone was wearing. Even the stones of the buildings were painted in vibrant colors. He'd always imagined the past as... dull. Statues from ancient times were weathered, and he'd never considered that they might have been painted so brightly. What of Noadon himself? In both visions, Dalinar had been shown someone he did not expect. The young Noadon, considering war, now the elderly one, glib and whimsical. Where was the deep-thinking philosopher who had written The Way of Kings? Remember, Dalinar told himself, this isn't really him. The person I'm talking to is a construct of the vision. Though some people in the market recognized their king, his passing didn't cause much of a stir. Dalinar spun as he saw something move beyond the buildings, a large shadow that passed between two structures, tall and enormous. He stared in that direction, but didn't see it again. They entered a tent where a merchant was selling exotic grains. The man bustled over and hugged Noadon in a way that should have been improper for a king. Then the two started haggling like scribes. The rings on the merchant's fingers flashed as he gestured at his wares. Dalinar lingered near the side of the tent, taking in the scents of the grains in the sacks. Outside, something made a distant thud, then another. The ground shook but nobody reacted. No, er, your majesty? Dalinar asked. Noadon ignored him. A shadow passed over the tent. Dalinar ducked, judging the form of the shadow, the sounds of crashing footfalls. Your majesty, he shouted, fearspren growing up around him. We're in danger. The shadow passed, and the footfalls grew distant. Deal, 
Noadon said to the merchant. And well argued, you swindler. Make sure to buy Lonnie something nice with the extra spears you got off me. The merchant bellowed a laughing reply. You think you got the worst of that? Storms, your majesty. You argue like my grandmother when she wants the last spoonful of jam. Did you see that shadow? Delinar asked Noadon. Have I told you, Noadon replied, where I learned to make shin loaf bread? It wasn't in shin cock nish, if that's what you were going to reply. I... Delinar looked in the direction the enormous shadow had gone. Uh, no, you haven't told me. It was at war, Noadon said, in the West. One of those senseless battles in the years following the desolation. I don't even remember what caused it. Someone invaded someone else, and that threatened our trade through Makabakum. So off we went. Well, I ended up with a scouting group on the edge of the Shin border. So you see, I tricked you just now. I said I wasn't in Shincocknish, and I wasn't. But I was right next to it. My troops occupied a small village beneath one of the passes. The matron who cooked for us accepted my military occupation without complaint. She didn't seem to care which army was in charge. She made me bread every day. And I liked it so much she asked if I wanted to learn. He trailed off. In front of him, the merchant set weights on one side of his large set of scales, representing the amount Noadon had purchased, then started pouring grain into a bowl on the other side of the scale. Golden, captivating grain, like the light of captured flames. What happened to the cookwoman? Dalinar asked. Something very unfair, Noadon said. It's not a happy story. I considered putting it into the book, but decided my story would best be limited to my walk to Eurythiru. He fell silent, contemplative. He reminds me of Teravangian, Dalinar suddenly thought. How odd. You're having trouble, my friend, Noadon said. Your life, like that of the woman, is unfair. Being a ruler is a burden, not merely a privilege, Dalinar said. You taught me that. But storms, Noadon. I can't see any way out. We've gathered the monarchs, yet the drums of war beat in my ears, demanding. For every step I make with my allies, we seem to spend weeks deliberating. The truth whispers in the back of my mind. I could best defend the world if I could simply make the others do as they should. Noadon nodded. So why don't you? You didn't. I tried and failed. That led me to a different path. You're wise and thoughtful. I'm a warmonger, Noadon. I've never accomplished anything without bloodshed. He heard them again. The tears of the dead, Evie, the children, flames burning a city. He heard the fire roar in delight at the feast. The merchant ignored them, busy trying to get the grain to balance. The weighted side was still heavier. Noadon set a finger on the bowl with the grain and pushed down, making the sides even. That will do, my friend. But, the merchant said, give the excess to the children, please. After all that haggling, you know I'd have donated some if you'd asked. 
and miss the fun of negotiating? Noadon said. He borrowed the merchant's pen, then crossed an item off his list. There is satisfaction, he said to Dalinar, in creating a list of things you can actually accomplish, then removing them one at a time. As I said, a simple joy. Unfortunately, I'm needed for bigger things than shopping. Isn't that always the problem? Tell me, my friend. You talk about your burdens and the difficulty of the decision. What is the cost of a principle? The cost? There shouldn't be a cost to being principled. Oh? What if making the right decision created a spren who instantly blessed you with wealth, prosperity, and unending happiness? What then? Would you still have principles? Isn't a principle about what you give up? Not what you gain? So it's all negative, Dalinar said. Are you implying that nobody should have principles because there's no benefit to them? Hardly, Noadon said. But maybe you shouldn't be looking for life to be easier because you choose to do something that is right. Personally, I think life is fair. It's merely that often you can't immediately see what balances it. He wagged the finger he'd used to tip the merchant's scales. If you'll forgive a somewhat blatant metaphor, I've grown fond of them. You might say I wrote an entire book about them. This is different from the other visions, Dalinar said. What's going on? The thumping from before returned. Dalinar spun then charged out of the tent, determined to get a look at the thing. He saw it above the buildings, a stone creature with an angular face and red spots glowing deep in its rocky skull. Storms, and he had no weapon. Noadon stepped from the tent, holding his bag of grain. He looked up and smiled. The creature leaned down, then offered a large skeletal hand. Noadon touched it with his own, and the creature stilled. This is quite the nightmare you've created, Noadon said. What does that thunderclass represent, I wonder? Pain, Dalinar said, backing away from the monster. Tears. Burdens. I'm a lie, Noadon, a hypocrite. Sometimes a hypocrite is nothing more than a man who is in the process of changing. Wait. Hadn't Dalinar said that? Back when he'd felt stronger? More certain? Other thumps sounded in the city. Hundreds of them. Creatures approaching from all sides, shadows in the sun. All things exist in three realms, Dalinar, Noadon said. The physical, where you are now. The cognitive, what you see yourself as being. The spiritual, the perfect you the person beyond pain and error and uncertainty. Monsters of stone and horror surrounded him, heads cresting roofs, feet crushing buildings. You've said the oaths, Noadon called, but do you understand the journey? Do you understand what it requires? You've forgotten one essential part, one thing that without which there can be no journey. The monsters slammed fists toward Dalinar, and he shouted. 
What is the most important step a man can take? Dalinar awoke, huddled in his bed in Eurythiru, asleep in his clothing again. A mostly empty bottle of wine rested on the table. There was no storm. It hadn't been a vision. He buried his face in his hands, trembling. Something bloomed inside of him. A recollection. Not really a new memory. Not one he'd completely forgotten, but it suddenly became as crisp as if he'd experienced it yesterday. The night of Gavilar's funeral. 104. Strength. A shirt marn, the heart of the revel, is the final of the three great, mindless, unmade. His gift to men is not prophecy or battle focus, but a lust for indulgence. Indeed, the great debauchery recorded from the court of Bayala in 480, which led to dynastic collapse, might be attributable to the influence of a shirt marn. From Hesse's Mythica, page 203. Navani Kolin had some practice holding a kingdom together. During Gavilar's last days, he had gone strange. Few knew how dark he'd grown, but they had seen the eccentricity. Yasna had written about that, of course. Yasna somehow found time to write about everything, from her father's biography to gender relations to the importance of chull breeding cycles on the southern slopes of the Horneater Peaks. Navani strode through the hallways of Eurythiru, joined by a nice burly group of Bridge Four windrunners. As Gavilar had grown more and more distracted, Navani herself had worked to keep squabbling light eyes from sundering the kingdom. But that had been a different kind of danger from the one she faced today. Today, her work had implications not only for one nation, but for the entire world. She burst into a room deep within the tower, and the four light-eyes seated there scrambled to their feet. All but Sabariel, who appeared to be flipping through a stack of cards bearing pictures of women in compromising positions. Navani sighed, then nodded as Aladar gave her a respectful bow, light glinting off his bald head. Not for the first time, Navani wondered if his thin mustache and the tuft of beard on his bottom lip were compensation for his lack of hair. Hatham was there as well, refined, with rounded features and green eyes. As usual, his fashion choices stood out from everyone else. Orange, today. Brightness Bethab had come representing her husband. The men in the army tended to disrespect him for letting her do so but that ignored the fact that marrying Mishina for her political acumen had been a wise and calculated move. The five men of Bridge Four arrayed themselves behind Navani. They'd been surprised when she'd asked them to escort her. They didn't yet understand the authority they lent the throne. The Knights Radiant were the new power in the world, and politics swirled around them like eddies in a river. Bright lords and bright lady... Navani said. I've come at your request and am at your service. Aladar cleared his throat, sitting. You know, Brightness, that we are the most loyal to your husband's cause. Or at the least, Sabariel added, we're the ones hoping to get rich by throwing in our lot with him. 
My husband appreciates the support, Navani said, regardless of motive. You create a stronger Alethkar, and therefore a stronger world. What's left of either one? Sabariel noted. Navani, bright lady Bethab said. She was a mousy woman with a pinched face. We appreciate that you've taken the initiative in this difficult time. There was a glint to her orange eyes, as if she assumed Navani was enjoying her new power. But the High Prince's absence is not advantageous for morale. We know that Dalinar has returned to his... distractions. The High Prince, Navani said, is in mourning. The only thing he seems to be mourning, Sabariel said, is the fact that people won't bring him bottles of wine fast enough for... Damnation, Turanad! Navani snapped. That's enough! Sabariel blinked, then pocketed his cards. Sorry, Brightness. My husband, Navani said, is still this world's best chance for survival. He will push through his pain. Until then, our duty is to keep the kingdom running. Hatham nodded, beads on his coat glistening. This is, of course, our goal. But Brightness, can you define what you mean by kingdom? You do know that Dalinar came to us and asked what we thought of this High King business. That news wasn't commonly known yet. They'd planned an official announcement, and even had Elokar seal the papers before leaving. Yet Dalinar had delayed. She understood. He wanted to wait until Elokar and Adolin who would become Colin High Prince in Dalinar's place, returned. And yet, as more and more time passed, the questions began to grow more pressing. What had happened to them in Colinar? Where were they? Strength. They would return. The High King proclamation has not been made official, Navani said. I think it's best to pretend you don't know about it for now. And whatever you do, don't mention it to ELA or Amaram. Very well, Aladar said. But brightness, we have other problems. Surely you've seen the reports. Hatham does an excellent job as High Prince of Works, but there isn't proper infrastructure. The tower has plumbing, but it keeps getting clogged and the soulcasters worked themselves to exhaustion dealing with the waste. We can't continue pretending the tower can accommodate this population, Brightness Bethab said. Not without a very favorable supply deal from Azir. Our emerald reserves, despite hunts on the shattered plains, are dwindling. Our water carts have to work nonstop. Equally important, Brightness, Hatham added. We might be facing a severe labor shortage. We have soldiers or caravan men filling in hauling water or packing goods, but they don't like it. Menial carrying is beneath them. We're running low on lumber, Sabariel added. I've tried to claim the forests back near the war camps, but we used to have parchment to cut them. I don't know if I can afford to pay men to do the work instead. But if we don't start something, Thanadal might try to seize them. He's building himself quite the kingdom in the war camps. This is not a time, Hatham said softly, when we can afford weak 
leadership. It is not a time when a would-be king can spend his days locked in his rooms. I'm sorry. We are not in rebellion, but we are very concerned. Navani drew in a breath. Hold it together. Order was the very substance of rule. If things were organized, control could be asserted. She just had to give Dalinar time, even if deep down a part of her was angry. Angry that his pain so overshadowed her growing fear for Elokar and Adolin. Angry that he got to drink himself to oblivion, leaving her to pick up the pieces. But she had learned that nobody was strong all the time. Not even Dalinar Colin. Love wasn't about being right or wrong, but about standing up and helping when your partner's back was bowed. He would likely do the same for her one day. Tell us honestly, Brightness, Sabariel said, leaning forward. What does the Blackthorn want? Is this all secretly a way for him to dominate the world? Storms. Even they worried about it. And why shouldn't they? It made so much sense. My husband wants unity, Navani said firmly, not dominion. You know as well as I do that we could have seized Thalen City. That would have led to selfishness and loss. There is no path through conquest to facing our enemy together. Aladar nodded slowly. I believe you, and I believe in him. But how do we survive? Brightness Bethab said. This tower's gardens once grew food, Navani said. We will figure out how it was done and we will grow here again. The tower once flowed with water. The baths and lavatories prove that. We will delve into the secrets of their fabrials and we will fix the plumbing problems. The tower is above the enemy's storm, supremely defensible and connected to the most important cities in the world. If there is a nation that can stand against the enemy, we will forge it here, with your help and my husband's leadership. They accepted that. Bless the Almighty, they accepted it. She made a mental note to burn a glyph word in thanks, then finally took a seat. Together they delved into the tower's most recent list of problems, talking through, as they'd done many times before, the dirty necessities of running a city. Three hours later, she checked her arm fabril, a mirror of the one Dalinar carried, with inset clock and newly designed pain rails. Three hours and twelve minutes since the meeting had begun. Exhaustion spren had collected to swirl around them all, and she called an end. They'd hashed out their immediate problems and would summon their various scribes to offer specific revisions. This would keep everyone going a little longer. And bless them, these four did want the coalition to work. Aladar and Sabariel, for all their flaws, had followed Dalinar into the dark of the weeping and found damnation waiting there. Hatham and Bethab had been at the advent of the new storm and could see that Dalinar had been right. They didn't care that the Blackthorn was a heretic, or even whether he usurped the throne of Alethkar. They cared that he had a plan for dealing with the enemy, long term. After the meeting broke, Navani walked off down the strata-lined hallway, trailed by her bridgeman guards, two of whom carried sapphire lanterns. I do apologize, she noted to them.
for how boring that must have been. We like boring brightness, Leighton, their leader today, said. He was a stocky man with short, curly hair. Hey, Hopper, anyone try to kill you in there? The gap-toothed Bridgman grinned his reply. Does Huyo's breath count? See, brightness, Leighton said. New recruits might get bored by guard duty, but you'll never find a veteran complaining about a nice quiet afternoon full of not being stabbed. I can see the appeal, she said. But surely it can't compare with soaring through the skies. That's true, Leighton said. But we have to take turns, you know. He meant using the honor blade to practice wind running. Cal has to return before we can do more than that. To a man, they were absolutely certain he'd return and showed the world jovial faces, though she knew not everything was perfect with them. Teft, for example, had been hauled before Aladar's magistrates two days ago. Public intoxication on fire moss. Aladar had quietly requested her seal to free him. No, all was not well with them. But as Navani led them down toward the basement library rooms, a different issue gnawed at her. Bright Lady Bethab's implication that Navani was eager for the chance to take over, while Dalinar was indisposed. Navani was not a fool. She knew how it looked to others. She'd married one king. After he died, she'd immediately gone after the next most powerful man in Alethkar. But she couldn't have people believing she was the power behind the throne. Not only would it undermine Dalinar, but it would grow tedious for her. She had no problem being a wife or mother to monarchs, but to be one herself. Storms, what a dark path that would lead them all down. She and the bridgemen passed no fewer than six squads of sentries on their way to the library rooms with the murals and, more importantly, the hidden gemstone records. Arriving, she idled in the doorway, impressed by the operation that Yasna had organized down here since Navani had been forced to step back from the research. Each gemstone had been removed from its individual drawer, catalogued, and numbered. While one group listened and wrote, others sat at tables, busy translating. The room buzzed with a low hum of discussion and scratching reeds, concentration spren dotting the air like ripples in the sky. Yasna strolled along the tables, looking through pages of translations. As Navani entered, the bridgemen gathered around Renarin, who blushed, looking up from his own papers, which were covered in glyphs and numbers. He did look out of place in the room. The only man in uniform rather than in the robes of an ardent or storm warden. Mother, Yasna said, not looking up from her papers. We need more translators. Do you have any other scribes versed in classical alethalon? I've lent you every one I have. What is Renarin studying over there? Hmm? Oh, he thinks there might be a pattern to which stones were stored in which drawers. He's been working on it all day. And? Nothing, which is not surprising. He insists he can find a pattern if he looks hard enough. Yasna lowered her pages and looked at her cousin, who was joking with the men of Bridge Four. Storms, Navani thought. 
He truly looks happy. Embarrassed as they ribbed him, but happy. She'd worried when he had first joined Bridge Four. He was the son of a high prince. Decorum and distance were appropriate when dealing with enlisted soldiers. But when before this had she last heard him laugh? Maybe, Navani said, we should encourage him to take a break and go out with the bridgeman for the evening. I'd rather keep him here, Yasna said, flipping through her pages. His powers need additional study. Navani would talk to Renarin anyway and encourage him to go out more with the men. There was no arguing with Yasna any more than there was arguing with a boulder. You just stepped to the side and went around. The translation goes well, Navani asked. Other than the bottleneck on numbers of scribes? We're lucky, Yasna said, that the gemstones were recorded so late in the life of the Radiance. They spoke a language we can translate. If it had been the dawn chant, that's close to being cracked. Yasna frowned at that. Navani had thought the prospect of translating the dawn chant and writings lost to the shadow days would have excited her. Instead, it seemed to trouble her. Have you found anything more about the tower's fabrials in these gemstone records? Navani asked. I'll be certain to prepare a report for you, mother, with details of each and every fabrial mentioned. So far, those references are few. Most are personal histories. Damnation. Mother, Yasna said, lowering her pages. What? I wouldn't have thought you would object to a few strong words now. It's not the language, but the dismissal, Yasna said. Histories. Oh, right. History is the key to human understanding. Here we go. We must learn from the past and apply that knowledge to our modern experience. Lectured by my own daughter again. The best indication of what human beings will do is not what they think, but what the record says similar groups have done in the past. Of course, brightness. Yasna gave her a dry look, then set her papers aside. I'm sorry, mother. I've been dealing with a lot of lesser ardents today. My didactic side might have inflated. You have a didactic side? Dear, you hate teaching. Which explains my mood, I should think. I, a young scribe, called for her from the other side of the room. Yasna sighed, then went to answer the question. Yasna preferred to work alone, which was odd, considering how good she was at getting people to do what she wanted. Navani liked groups, but of course, Navani wasn't a scholar. Oh, she knew how to pretend but all she really did was nudge here and there, perhaps provide an idea. Others did all the real engineering. She poked through the papers Yasna had set aside. Perhaps her daughter had missed something in the translations. To her mind, the only scholarship of importance was stuffy, dusty writings of old philosophers. When it came to fabrials, Yasna barely knew her pairings from her warnings. What was this? The glyphs were scrawled in white on the high prince's wall, the paper read. 
We quickly ascertained the implement of writing to be a stone pried free near the window. This first sign was the roughest of them, the glyphs malformed. The reason for this later became apparent, as Prince Renarin was not versed in writing glyphs, save the numbers. The other pages were similar, talking about the strange numbers found around Dalinar's palace in the days leading up to the Everstorm. They'd been made by Renarin, whose spren had given him warning that the enemy was preparing an assault. The poor boy, uncertain of his bond and frightened to speak out, had instead written the numbers where Dalinar would see them. It was a little odd, but in the face of everything else, it didn't really register. And, well, it was Renarin. Why had Yasna collected all of these? I have a description for you finally, Yasna, another said. We've convinced the radiant that Lyft found in Yedaw to visit Azimir. Though she has not yet arrived, you can find sketches of her spren companion here. It looks like the shimmer you see on a wall when you shine light through a crystal. Troubled, Navani set the sheets down before Yasna could return. She got a copy of the translated portions from the gemstones. Several young scribes were assigned to making these available, then slipped out to go check on Dalinar. 105. Spirit, Mind, and Body Six Years Ago Only the very most important people were allowed to watch Gavilar's holy interment. Dalinar stood at the front of the small crowd gathered in the royal catacombs of Kolinar, beneath the stone site of kings. Fires burned at the sides of the room, a primal light, traditional. Distinctly more alive than the light of spheres, it reminded him of the rift. But for once that pain was overpowered by something new, a fresh wound. The sight of his brother lying dead on the slab. Spirit, mind, and body, the wizened ardent said, her voice echoing in the stone catacomb. Death is the separation of the three. The body remains in our realm to be reused. The spirit rejoins the pool of divine essence that gave it birth. And the mind, the mind goes to the tranquiline halls to find its reward. Dalinar's nails bit his skin as he clenched his hands into fists, tight to keep him from trembling. Gavilar the Majestic, the Ardent continued, first king of Alethkar in the new Colin dynasty, thirty-second high prince of the Colin princedom, heir of the Sunmaker and blessed of the Almighty. His accomplishments will be lauded by all, and his dominion extends to the hereafter. Already he leads men again on the battlefield, Serving the Almighty in the true war against the Voidbringers, the Arden thrust a bony hand toward the small crowd. Our king's war has moved to the Tranquiline Halls. The end of our war for Roshar did not end our duty to the Almighty. Think upon your callings, 
men and women of Alaska. Think of how you might learn here and be of use in the next world. Yevana would use any available opportunity to preach. Dalinar clenched his hands tighter, angry at her, angry at the Almighty. Dalinar should not have lived to see his brother die. This was not the way it should have gone. He felt eyes on his back, collected high princes and wives, important ardents, Navani, Yasna, Elokar, Asadon, Dalinar's sons. Nearby, High Prince Sabario glanced at Dalinar, eyebrows raised. He seemed to be expecting something. I'm not drunk, you idiot, Dalinar thought. I'm not going to make a scene to amuse you. Things have been going better lately. Dalinar had started controlling his vices. He'd confined his drinking to monthly trips away from Kolinar, visiting outer cities. He said the trips were to let Alakar practice ruling without Dalinar looking over his shoulder, as Gavilar had been spending more and more time abroad. But during those trips, Dalinar drank himself to oblivion, letting himself escape the sounds of children crying for a few precious days. Then, when he returned to Kolinar, he controlled his drinking. And he'd never again yelled at his sons, as he had at poor Renarin during that day on the way back from the shattered plains. Adolin and Renarin were the only pure remnant of Evi. If you control your drinking when back in Kolinar, a part of him challenged, what happened at the feast? Where were you when Gavilar was fighting for his life? We must use King Gavilar as a model for our own lives, the Ardent was saying. We must remember that our lives are not our own. This world is but the skirmish to prepare us for the true war. And after that, Dalinar asked, looking up from Gavilar's corpse. The Ardent squinted, adjusting her spectacles. High Prince Dalinar? After that, what? Dalinar said. After we win back the Tranquiline Halls, what then? No more war? Is that when we finally get to rest? You needn't worry, Blackthorn, Yervena said. Once that war is won, the Almighty will certainly provide for you another conquest. She smiled comfortingly then moved on to the ritual sayings. A series of kedeks, some traditional, others composed by female family members for the event. Ardens burned the poems as prayers and braziers. Dalinar looked back down at his brother's corpse, which stared upward, lifeless blue marbles replacing his eyes. Brother, he'd said, follow the codes tonight. There is something strange upon the winds. Dalinar needed something to drink, Stormit. You, always about dreams. My soul weeps. Farewell, weeping soul. My dreams about always you. The poem slapped him harder than the others. He sought out Navani and knew instantly that the Ketek had been hers. Gazing straight ahead, she stood with one hand on Elokar's king. Elokar's shoulder. So beautiful. 
Next to her, Yasna stood with arms wrapped around herself, eyes red. Nivani reached toward her, but Yasna pulled away from the others and stalked off toward the palace proper. Delana wished he could do the same, but instead drew himself to attention. It was over. He'd never have a chance to live up to Gavilar's expectations. Delinar would live the rest of his life as a failure to this man whom he had loved so dearly. The hall grew still, quiet save for the crinkling sound of paper burning in the fires. The soul-caster stood up, and old Yavenna stepped hastily backward. She wasn't comfortable with what was coming next. None of them were, judging by the shuffling feet, the coughs into hands. The soul-caster might have been male, might have been female. Hard to say with that hood up over their face. The skin beneath was colored like granite, cracked and chipped, and seemed to glow from within. The soul-caster regarded the corpse, head cocked, as if surprised to find a body here. They ran their fingers along Gavilar's jaw, then brushed the hair off his forehead. The only part of you that is true the soul-caster whispered, tapping a stone that had replaced one of the king's eyes. Then, light emerged as the soul-caster drew their hand from their pocket, revealing a set of gemstones bound into a fabriel. Dalinar didn't look away, despite how the light made his eyes water. He wished... He wished he'd taken a drink or two before coming. Was he really supposed to watch something like this while sober? The soul-caster touched Gavilar on the forehead, and the transformation happened instantly. One moment Gavilar was there, the next he had become a statue. The soul-caster slipped a glove onto their hand, while other ardents hurried to remove the wires that had held Gavilar's body in position. They used levers to tip him carefully forward until he was standing, holding a sword with point toward the ground, his other hand outstretched. He stared toward eternity, crown on his head, the curls of his beard and hair preserved delicately in the stone. A powerful pose. The mortuary sculptors had done a fantastic job. The Ardens pushed him back into an alcove where he joined the lines of other monarchs, most of them high princes of the Colin princedom. He would be forever frozen here, the image of a perfect ruler in his prime. Nobody would think of him as he'd been that terrible night, broken from his fall, his grand dreams cut short by treason. I'll have vengeance, mother, Elicar whispered. I'll have it. The young king spun toward the gathered light eyes, standing before his father's outstretched stone hand. You've each come to me privately to give support. Well, I demand you swear it in public. Today... We make a pact to hunt those who did this. Today, Alethkar goes to war. He was greeted by stunned silence. I swear it, Torol Sadius said. I swear to bring vengeance to the traitorous Parshman, your majesty. You can depend upon my sword. Good, Dalinar thought as others spoke up. This would hold them together. Even in death, Gavilar provided an excuse for unity. Unable to stand that stone visage any longer, Dalinar left, 
stomping into the corridor toward the palace proper. Other voices echoed after him as high princes swore. If Elokar was going to chase those Parshendi back toward the plains, he'd expect the Blackthorns' help. But Dalinar hadn't been that man for years. He patted his pocket, looking for his flask. Damnation. He pretended he was better these days, kept telling himself he was in the process of finding a way out of this mess, of returning to the man he'd once been. But that man had been a monster, frightening that nobody had blamed him for the things he'd done, nobody but Evie who had seen what the killing would do to him. He closed his eyes, hearing her tears. Father, a voice said from behind, Dalinar forced himself to stand upright, turning as Adolin scrambled up to him. Are you well, father? Yes, Dalinar said. I just need to be alone. Adolin nodded. Almighty above the boy had turned out well, through little effort of Dalinar's. Adolin was earnest, likable, and a master of the sword. He was truly capable in modern Alethi society, where how you moved among groups was even more important than strength of arm. Dalinar had always felt like a tree stump in those kinds of settings. Too big, too stupid. Go back, Dalinar said. Swear for our house on this vengeance pact. Adolin nodded, and Dalinar continued onward, fleeing those fires below. Gavilar's stare judging him the cries of people dying in the rift. By the time he reached the steps, he was practically running. He climbed one level, then another. Sweating, frantic, he raced through ornate hallways, past carved walls, sedate woods, and accusatory mirrors. He reached his chambers and scrabbled in his pockets for the keys. He'd locked the place tight. No more would Gavilar sneak in to take his bottles. Bliss waited inside. No. Not bliss. Oblivion. Good enough. His hands wouldn't stop shaking. He couldn't. It. Follow the codes tonight. Dalinar's hands trembled and he dropped the keys. There is something strange upon the winds. Screams for mercy. Get out of my head. All of you, get out. In the distance, a voice. You must find the most important words a man can say. Which key was it? He got one into the lock, but it wouldn't turn. He couldn't see. He blinked, feeling dizzy. Those words came to me from one who claimed to have seen the future, the voice said, echoing in the hallway. Feminine. Familiar. How is this possible? I asked in return. Have you been touched by the void? The reply was laughter. No, sweet king. The past is the future, and as each man has lived, so must you. So I can but repeat what has been done before? In some things, yes. You will love, you will hurt, you will dream, and you will die. Each man's past is your future. Then what is the point? I asked if all has been seen and done. The question, she replied, is not whether you will love, hurt, dream, and die. It is what 
you will love, why you will hurt, when you will dream, and how you will die. This is your choice. You cannot pick the destination, only the path. Dalinar dropped the keys again, sobbing. There was no escape. He would fall again. Wine would consume him like a fire consumed a corpse, leaving only ash. There was no way out. This started my journey, the voice said, and this begins my writings. I cannot call this book a story, for it fails at its most fundamental to be a story. It is not one narrative, but many. And though it has a beginning, here on this page, my quest can never truly end. I wasn't seeking answers. I felt that I had those already, plenty in multitude from a thousand different sources. I wasn't seeking myself. This is a platitude that people have ascribed to me, and I find the phrase lacks meaning. In truth, by leaving, I was seeking only one thing, a journey. For years it seemed that Dalinar had been seeing everything around him through a haze. But those words, something about them, could words give off light? He turned from his door and walked down the corridor searching for the source of the voice. Inside the royal reading room he found Yasna, with a huge tome set before her at a standing table. She read to herself, turning to the next page, scowling. What is that book? Dalinar asked. Yasna started. She wiped her eyes, smearing the makeup, leaving her eyes clean but raw, holes in a mask. This is where my father got that quote, she said. The one he... The one he wrote as he died. Only a few knew of that. What book is it? An old text, Yasna said. Ancient, once well regarded. It's associated with the lost radiance, so nobody references it anymore. There has to be some secret here. A puzzle behind my father's last words? A cipher? But what? Dalinar settled down into one of the seats. He felt as if he had no strength. Will you read it to me? Yasna met his eyes, chewing her lip as she'd always done as a child. Then she read in a clear, strong voice, starting over from the first page, which he'd just heard. He had expected her to stop after a chapter or two, but she didn't, and he didn't want her to. Dalinar listened, rapt. People came to check on them. Some brought Yasna water to drink. For once, he didn't ask them for anything. All he wanted was to listen. He understood the words, but at the same time he seemed to be missing what the book said— it was a sequence of vignettes about a king who left his palace to go on a pilgrimage. Dalinar couldn't define, even to himself, what he found so striking about the tales. Was it their optimism? Was it the talk of paths and choices? It was so unpretentious, 
so different from the boasts of society or the battlefield. Just a series of stories, their morals ambiguous. It took almost eight hours to finish, but Yasna never gave any indication she wanted to stop. When she read the last word, Dalinar found himself weeping again. Yasna dabbed at her own eyes. She had always been so much stronger than he was, but here they shared an understanding. This was their sending off to Gavilar's soul. This was their farewell. Leaving the book on the lectern, Yasna walked over to Dalinar as he stood up. They embraced, saying nothing. After a few moments, she left. He went to the book, touching it, feeling the lines of the writing stamped into its cover. He didn't know how long he'd been standing there when Adolin peeked in. Father, we're planning to send expeditionary forces to the Shattered Plains. Your input would be appreciated. I must, Dalinar whispered. Go on a journey. Yeah, Adolin said. It's a long way. Might get some hunts in while we're on our way, if there's time. Elikar wants these barbarians wiped out quickly. We could be gone and back in a year. Paths. Dalinar could not choose his end, but perhaps his path. The old magic can change a person, Evie had said. Make something great of them. Dalinar stood up taller. He turned and stepped toward Adolin, seizing him by the shoulder. I've been a poor father these last few years, Dalinar said. Nonsense, Adolin said. You... I've been a poor father, Dalinar repeated, raising his finger. To you and your brother both. You should know how proud I am of you. Adolin beamed, glowing like a sphere right after a storm. Glory spren sprang up around him. We will go to war together, Dalinar said, like we did when you were young. I will show you what it is to be a man of honor. But first, I need to take an advance force without you, I'm afraid, and secure the Shattered Plains. We talked about that, Adolin said, eager. Like your elites from before. Fast, quick. You'll march... Sail, Dalinar said. Sail? The rivers should be flowing, Dalinar said. I'll march south, then take a ship to Dumadari. From there, I'll sail to the Ocean of Origins and make landfall at New Natanen. I'll move in toward the Shattered Plains with my force and secure the region, preparing for the rest of you to arrive. That would be a sound idea, I guess, Adolin said. It was sound. Sound enough that when one of Dalinar's ships was delayed and Dalinar himself remained in port, sending most of his force on without him, nobody would think it strange. Dalinar did get himself into trouble. He would swear his men and sailors to secrecy and travel a few months out of his way before continuing on to the Shattered Plains. Evie had said the old magic could transform a man. It was about time he started trusting her. 106. Law is Light I find Ba Edo Mishram to be the most interesting of the unmade. She is said to have been keen of mind, 
a high princess among the enemy forces, their commander during some of the desolations. I do not know how this relates to the ancient god of the enemy named Odium. From Hesse's Mythica, page 224. Zeth of Shinovar flew with the skybreakers for three days southward. They stopped several times to recover hidden stockpiles in mountain peaks or remote valleys. To find doorways, they often had to hack through five inches of creme. That amount of build-up had probably taken centuries to accumulate, yet Nin spoke of the places as if he'd just left. At one, he was surprised to find the food long since decayed, though fortunately the gemstone stockpile there had been hidden in a place where it remained exposed to the storms. In these visits, Zeth finally began to grasp how ancient this creature was. On the fourth day, they reached Marat. Zeth had been to the kingdom before. He had visited most of Roshar during the years of his exile. Historically, Marat wasn't truly a nation, but neither was it a place of nomads like the backwaters of Hexi or Tufalia. Instead, Marat was a group of loosely connected cities, tribally run, with a high prince at their head, though in a local dialect he was called Elder Brother. The country made for a convenient way-stop between the Boran kingdoms of the east and the Makabaki ones of the center-west. Zeth knew that Marat was rich in culture, full of people as proud as you'd find in any nation, but of almost no value on the political scale, which made it curious that Nin chose to end their flight here. They landed on a plain full of strange brown grass that reminded Zeth of wheat, save for the fact that this pulled down into burrows, leaving visible only the small bob of grain on the top. This was casually eaten by wild beasts that were wide and flat, like walking discs, with claws only on the underside to shove the grain into their mouths. The disc-like animals would probably migrate eastward, their droppings containing seeds that stuck to the ground would survive storms to grow into first-stage polyps. Those would later blow to the west and become second-stage grain. All life worked in concert, he'd been taught in his youth. Everything but men, who refused their place, who destroyed instead of added. Nin spoke briefly with Ki and the other masters, who took to the air again. The others joined them, all but Zeth and Nin himself, and streaked toward a town in the distance. Before Zeth could follow, Nin took him by the arm and shook his head. Together the two of them flew to a smaller town on a hill near the coast. Zeth knew the effects of war when he saw them. Broken doors, ruins of a short breached wall. The destruction looked recent, though any bodies had been cleaned out and the blood had been washed away by high storms. They landed before a large stone building with a peaked roof. Mighty doors of soul-cast bronze lay broken off in the rubble. Zeth would be surprised if somebody didn't return to claim those for their metal. Not every army had access to soul-casters. Oh, the sword said from his back. We missed the fun? That tyrant in Tukar, Zeth said, looking through the silent town. He decided to end his war against Imul and expand eastward? No, Nin said. This is a different danger. He pointed toward the building with the broken doors. 
Can you read that writing above the doorway, Zeth son Naturo? It's in the local language. I don't know the script, Aboshi. The divine honorific was his best guess of how to address one of the heralds, though among his people it had been reserved for the great spren of the mountains. It says justice, Nin said. This was a courthouse. Zeth followed the herald up the steps and into the cavernous main room of the ruined courthouse. In here, sheltered from the storm, they found blood on the floor. No bodies, but plenty of discarded weapons, helms, and, disturbingly, the meager possessions of civilians. The people had likely taken refuge inside here during the battle, a last grasp at safety. The ones you call Parshmen name themselves the Singers, Nin said. They took this town and pressed the survivors into labor at some docks farther along the coast. Was what happened here justice, Zeth son Naturo? How could it be? He shivered. The dark reaches of the room seemed to be filled with haunted whispers. He drew closer to the herald for safety. Ordinary people, living ordinary lives, suddenly attacked and murdered? A poor argument... But if the lord of this city had stopped paying his taxes, then forced his people to defend the city when higher authorities arrived and attacked, is not a prince justified in maintaining order in his lands? Sometimes it is just to kill ordinary people. But that did not happen here, Zeth said. You said this was caused by an invading army. Yes, Nin said softly. This is the fault of invaders. That is true. He continued walking through the hollow room, Zeth staying close behind him. You are in a unique position, Zeth son Naturo. You will be the first to swear the oaths of a skybreaker in a new world, a world where I have failed. They found steps near the back wall. Zeth got out a sphere for light, as Nin did not appear to be so inclined. That drove the whispers back. I visited Ishar, Nin continued. You call him Ishu Sun God. He has always been the most wise of us. I did not want to believe what had happened. Zet nodded. He had seen that. After the first ever storm, Nin had insisted that the Voidbringers hadn't returned. He had given excuse after excuse until eventually he'd been forced to admit what he was seeing. I worked for thousands of years to prevent another desolation, Nin continued. Ishar warned me of the danger. Now that honor is dead, other radiance might upset the balance of the oath pact, might undermine certain measures we took, and give an opening to the enemy. He stopped at the top of the steps and looked down at his hand where a glistening shard blade appeared, one of the two missing honor blades. Zeth's people had care of eight. Once, long ago, it had been nine. Then this one had vanished. He'd seen depictions of it, strikingly straight and unornamented for a shard blade, yet still elegant. Two slits ran the length of the weapon, gaps that could never exist in an ordinary sword as they would weaken it. They walked along a loft at the top of the courtroom. 
records storage, judging by the scattered ledgers on the floor. You should draw me, the sword said. And do what, sword Nimi? Zeth whispered. Fight him. I think he might be evil. He is one of the heralds, one of the least evil things in the world. Huh. Doesn't bode well for your world, then. Anyway, I'm better than that sword he has. I can show you. Picking his way past the legal debris, Zeth joined Nin beside the loft's window. In the distance, farther along the coast, a large bay glistened with blue water. Many masts of ships gathered there, figures buzzing around them. I have failed, Nin repeated. And now, for the people, justice must be done. A very difficult justice, Zeth son Naturo. Even for my skybreakers. We will endeavor to be as passionless and logical as you, Aboshi. Nin laughed. It didn't seem to carry the mirth that it should have. Me? No, Zeth son Naturo. I am hardly passionless. This is the problem. He paused, staring out the window at the distant ships. I am... different from how I once was. Worse, perhaps. Despite all that, a part of me wishes to be merciful. And is mercy such a bad thing, Aboshi? Not bad, merely chaotic. If you look through the records in this hall, you will find the same story told again and again. Leniency and mercy... Men set free despite crimes because they were good fathers, or well-liked in the community, or in the favor of someone important. Some of those who are set free change their lives and go on to produce for society. Others recidivate and create great tragedies. The thing is, Zeth's son Naturo, we humans are terrible at spotting which will be which. The purpose of the law is so we do not have to choose, so our native sentimentality will not harm us. He looked down again at his sword. You, he said to Zeth, must choose a third ideal. Most skybreakers choose to swear themselves to the law, then follow with exactness the laws of whatever lands they visit. That is a good option, but not the only one. Think wisely and choose. Yes, Aboshi, Zeth said. There are things you must see and things you must know before you can speak. The others must interpret what they have sworn before, and I hope they will see the truth. You will be the first of a new order of skybreakers. He looked back out the window. The singers allowed the people of this town to return here to burn their dead, a kinder gesture than most conquerors would allow. Aboshi, may I ask you a question? Law is light, and darkness does not serve it. Ask, and I will answer. I know you are great, ancient, and wise, Zeth said, but to my lesser eyes— you do not seem to obey your own precepts, 
You hunted surgebinders, as you said. I obtained legal permission for the executions I performed. Yes, Zeth said. But you ignored many lawbreakers to pursue these few. You had motives beyond the law, Aboshi. You were not impartial. You brutally enforced specific laws to achieve your ends. This is true. So is this just your own sentimentality? In part, though I have certain leniencies. The others have told you of the fifth ideal? The ideal where the skybreaker becomes the law? Nin held out his empty left hand. A shard blade appeared there, different and distinct from the honor blade he carried in the other hand. I am not only a herald, but a skybreaker of the fifth ideal. Though I was originally skeptical of the Radiance, I believe I am the only one who eventually joined his own order. And now, Zeth son Naturo, I must tell you of the decision we heralds made long ago, on a day that would become known as a Harietium, the day we sacrificed one of our own to end the cycle of pain and death. <laughs>